You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning. If we don't know each other, I'm Nick, pastor here at Illini Life. I think I know most of you that look around this morning. It's good to be back together. I'm uh, excited to start off this semester with you. I'm excited, excited to come here this morning to enter back into the room. Excited to see familiar faces. I hope you had a restful and encouraging break. Uh, I know, and I've talked to some of you, you worked jobs. It wasn't quite the break, but there's at least more space at this time of year, right? We talked about that as we started. As we get going, though, I want to hear about your break. I want to hear a little bit. Shout it out. What was the greatest thing Santa gave you, or what's the greatest gift you got or you gave this this semester, or this Christmas season? Beef. Beef. Okay. That would not have been the greatest gift to me. I'm a vegetarian, if you didn't know that. What else? Hot sauce? Hot sauce? Uh, John, I, I could relate to that, right? I went to Schaumburg's. Okay. Uh-huh. Good, some good hot sauce. You have to bring it to, like, breaking bread or something for us. What else? Somebody else got something. What's the greatest gift you gave? Something you were proud of you gave. Thoughtful. Pre-workout. Pre-workout, yeah. I would have enjoyed that. Cool. Well, uh, so... Rod, why don't you throw this slide up? In my house, if my son was here and said off in, in kids' company, he would be telling you this. He would be shouting this out and laughing, giggling in the back of the room. Maybe you recognize this product. He learned this season about a product called poopery, which is something you spray in the toilet before you do what maybe you think. Um, and it's supposed to help with the stink. But, you know, he's five years old, and uh, if you're five years old, that topic is hilarious to you. If you're 40 years old, that topic's hilarious to you, and giving that as a gift is hilarious. So that's what he would be shouting out. He laughed hysterically when he gave that to me on Christmas morning, and I opened it up. So that's my house with a five-year-old right now. Uh, another gift that our household got, and, and I'd love to share with you, because I've been keeping you up today on the saga of our disappearing Christmas decorations. Oh, yeah. Snoopy returned. Whoa. Well, yeah. not exactly, right? This is a different Snoopy. He was placed there by some sneaky cleppers about a week before Christmas, but it brought a lot of joy to our household that Snoopy was returned. So uh, you don't have to hear me complain about those sinners who stole our decorations anymore. <laughs> the, the universe has been set back to order. My heart is a little bit uh, placated, and I, I'm no longer lamenting to the Lord over it. So. Anyways, I, I thought it was fun to sort of just reflect a little bit over our breaks uh, as we get started. But we got, we got a lot of ground to cover here. We're here for a Bible study, right? Let's get going on that. And, and I want to frame in each semester, I want to give you a head, you know, heads up of where we're headed. So that, I'm going to take a little bit of time here this morning before we dive into our passage to just share with you where we're going this semester. All right? So let's do that before we turn to our passage. Um, if you remember back with me, in the fall, we shared with you that we have a goal here. I have a deep goal. We as elders, as, as leaders, have a goal that every four years we would teach through the overarching story of the Bible, right? Because for most of, of you, you're here for a four-year span, and so this gives you the chance to know the full message of what God has been doing with humanity that's been revealed in Scripture. You get a chance to engage with all the different genres in Scripture and know how to read them, give the handholds, and know how to, how to engage with the differences between a historic Old Testament narrative and, and a New Testament letter to a church. How to read prophecy. How to read a gospel. We want you to, to hear the entire message of the Bible, all that God has to say. We don't want to pick and choose what's easy to, to uh, 
uh, to teach or, or what sounds good or is fun or is the, you know, the latest hip thing. They don't want to go with what's just easy to swallow or what's culturally acceptable, what doesn't ruffle feathers. We want to teach the whole message of God. We think that's the challenge to the church. That's in, encapsulated his message in the Bible for us, so we want, to, we want to make sure we observe all of it. But at the same time, we also want to observe uh, key seasons in the church, Advent and Lent. And, and you saw that last semester as we wrapped up. We were observing Advent. And we'll be observing Lent here together as well. And that kind of shapes a little bit of, of where our teachings go. So where we're at in that four-year overarching progression, uh, if, well, at least in my mind, where I'm tracking it, <laughs> uh, we're, we've reached, we're reaching a point of a style of writing in the New Testament that's often called a pastoral epistle. And maybe that means nothing to you, maybe it means everything to you. There are three key books, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And these are written by Paul to pastors of churches, helping them lead their churches, helping them what they're up against. And these books, they can often be overlooked or not often taught in, in a lot of modern churches. And, and that's because they're kind of reserved. Like these are the church leadership books. These are like how you govern a church, how you find qualities of a leader, how to handle false teachings, right? It's about orderly worship. It's, it's not about practical, everyday Christian living, or, or maybe it actually is. And, and that's what we believe. You know, these can be sort of, these are the books for the leaders to study, and then we're going to study elsewhere in the New Testament, right? We're not going to do that here. We're going to dive in deep. We think you're bright. We know you're bright. You're U of I students. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to dive in deep, and we're going to explore what is going on in 1 Timothy, how, what it means to be a healthy church, what that looks like, because that's all this book is about. That's the first place we're headed this semester. We're going to study the book of 1 Timothy together. And then after that, we're going to take some time to prepare for the celebration of Easter. We're going to observe the season of Lent. We're going to turn to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. We're going to go back to some Old Testament prophecy. And the book of Isaiah, it's loaded with messianic images, right? There's tons of these, and this is why you saw some of these in Advent and, and other times when we've, we've gone back and reflected on those. The, the, the Messiah imagery is just rich in Isaiah's writings. Actually, after Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Jesus refers to it often in his teachings, Right, there's a, I love to refer to it, there's this famous mic drop moment as Jesus is beginning his ministry. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah, he reads from Isaiah 61 and says, this is fulfilled in me. And then he closes and sits down, leaving the people to wonder, what is he saying? Who is this man, right? It's beautiful. Jesus challenging his hearers to see who he is. And the passages that we're going to cover in Lent, they're some of the famous passages that we've covered before called the Servant Songs. We did this a few years ago. Uh, several of you have expressed a desire to return to them in and, and this season of Lent, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back there and, and look at them. There's uh, four key servant songs that, that build the imagery of, of who uh, the servant of God that will come into the world that will suffer on our behalf. And they culminate in Isaiah 53, a passage you've likely heard before. It clearly points to Jesus and his suffering on the cross, his death on our behalf. And that's where we'll spend the, the weeks leading up to Easter. And then, and on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, we will turn, we'll join Jesus on the road to Emmaus with some followers and, and wonder what it's like for them as he's opening their minds to the scriptures, as he's probably reading back over or reflecting back over these servant songs, the writings of Isaiah, and saying, these were fulfilled in me. It all pointed to me, to the cross, and to my resurrection. 
So that's where we're headed in the middle of the semester. And that'll leave just four weeks at the end of the semester. We'll, we'll wrap up with Celebration Sunday like we usually do. We'll reflect on what the Lord has done. Hopefully have some baptisms, have a meal together. But in the three weeks after Easter and before Celebration Sunday, we're going to zoom out and do a high-level overview of the final phase of the Old Testament, the return from exile. And there are three key books here to look to during that, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And we're going to do a high-level overview of these. One week at a time, we're going to just give you the main idea, the main theme of these books, maybe understanding of the structure, the framework, and how to, how to read it, how to study it. And then we'll move on to the next one. The idea is to give you a handhold of how to engage and study it, what's going on here, place it in into the big story of what God has been doing. So that's where we're headed. I hope you're excited. If you want to get started, you know, start studying 1 Timothy. Start looking to Ezra and Nehemiah and, uh, and Esther. You start reading through the servant songs. You'll prepare yourself for the study that's ahead. Well, let's, let's get started then, right? I'm excited to dive into 1 Timothy. Like, uh, I thought about, could I just do that as a video and send it out to you guys? Would you watch it? No, but let's, let's dive into our passage. Let's, let's get there. That's what I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about all that other stuff too, but um, let's do our Bible study, right? Like I like to do when we start a book, I want to frame it in for you, okay? So the book of 1 Timothy, it breaks down into four major chunks. And if you know, that's my technical term. I use it often. Four chunks. It's seminary trained. Um, and for once... For once, the chapters in our Bibles, they actually match up pretty well to the divisions in this book. It's sort of, maybe somebody knew what they were doing when they put those chapter headings in. Sometimes I wonder if they did. Yeah. Chapter one, it's all about Timothy's calling to ministry. Sort of frames in the letter, and that's what we're going to study this morning. Chapter two, it's about orderly worship. About how, do we, how do we do this thing when we're gathered as the church? Chapter three, it's all about qualifications for church leaders. Who should Timothy be looking to to help him lead the church? Who's qualified to do that? Specifically, it talks about elders or overseers, and, and then uh, deacons or deaconesses, and, and, and those you can probably refer to as, as servants is the better, is the key translation of what that Greek word is, servants. Chapters four through six are more specific tasks, sort of the nuance of what he's really up against and, and how to handle those things. So that's the four major chunks. We'll kind of take it in four weeks here uh, with a, a summary of those, or a sampling from those last four chapters. This book, who wrote it? The Apostle, the Apostle Paul wrote this book. Like much of the, the letters in the New Testament, Paul wrote this one. Now, some people dispute that Paul wrote this, but as, I'm, I'm some off, as I often say, it's very questionable scholarship if you conclude that. Most of church history is not, and, and most scholars that, uh, well, most respected scholars would not disagree that Paul wrote this. It's clearly written by Paul, in my opinion, and that's what we're going to stand by. It's directed to Timothy. Timothy is a disciple of Paul who has traveled with him on his missionary journeys. We encountered him in Acts when we studied through there. Paul has been a mentor to him, and Timothy has been like a son to Paul, is the way that he, he refers to it. It's a close relationship. I refer to him as a pastoral epistle. There's a, it's a pastoral letter. It's a, it's a letter to Timothy to help him in his ministry, to help him as a pastor. It, but... It's not just about ministry. It's, it, it's heartfelt. It's personal. He knows him. He is encouraging him. It's Paul, an older pastor, caring for a younger pastor, who's Timothy, who's in a challenging church context, up against some, some hard things. And the book, it, it covers a lot of territory. First Timothy, there's six chapters, but it covers a lot of territory. There's, there's false teachers to handle. 
There's, order, there's disorderly worship to correct. There's how to identify church leaders who can't do this all on his own. And there's, there's a reminder of the core of the faith, and there's, there's specifics of, of what's going on in their church. Now, all along, Paul is giving Timothy the guidance he needs to be able to address these, to correct these situations, all while offering him encouragement. This book, it, it offers us instructions on how to conduct ourselves as a healthy church, how a healthy church ought to be ordered and conduct itself. If you want to think for the main theme of the book of 1 Timothy, it's, it's how to live as a healthy church. It's instructions, it's encouragement, guidelines for that. Now, Timothy, where is this at? It's, Timothy, he's in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And you may uh, remember this from our study of, of Acts, or, or maybe not, that's okay. It was originally founded by Paul and his missionary companions on their second journey uh, into Asia Minor. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. That's where the, they first come to uh, Ephesus. And then they return on their, their third missionary journey. And actually, this time they stay for two or three years. There's a lot of teaching and instructing of the believers in Ephesus going on during that time by Paul and his, his missionary companions. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19 if you want to go back and refer to that. While they're there on their long stay, Paul and his team, they're spending a lot of time addressing false doctrines and pagan practices, the teachings of the day that are sort of in the air and are infiltrating the church. Paul, we read about Paul renting a schoolroom of Tyrannus, a, a, I guess a teacher or professor there. And in the heat of the day, likely when he's not using his lecture hall, Paul is teaching there. And his teachings, they become so successful, the crowds are so moved that those that practice magic bring their books, and it's, it's like millions of dollars of magical books and incantations and spells, things that they burn them. They say, we, we repent of this black magic that we've done. We want to serve the Lord. It's amazing. It's a, you can read about all this in, in Acts. And so there's, there's been real groundwork laid for the gospel as they've spent their time, their two or three years there. You remember, how, uh, we, we studied this also, uh, the silversmiths in this town. Their, their profit margins are dropping because fewer people are buying idols because Paul and his missionaries are teaching Jesus. And they say, we don't need these silver idols anymore, right? And so like, brothers, our profits are going down the tubes. We need to get rid of these guys, right? So they incite a riot with the chant of greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And they fill the Colosseum area, the gathering area, and, and they're, they're disbanded because they're at risk of, of drawing the attention of Rome, of causing a riot. That whole, you know, that whole exchange with the, with the silversmiths, it, it uh, causes them to leave the town ultimately. So, this, so that's sort of the end of their time in Ephesus. There's been an impact, is the point. Paul and his team here, Timothy included, in, in Ephesus, has made an impact and the church has been established here. Later, as Paul is returning, wrapping up this missionary journey, right, he, he's heading to to. Jerusalem, which he fully expects to be the end of him, his arrest, maybe his death. He stops off at a nearby island of Miletus, and he calls the Ephesian church leaders to him in a heart-wrenching, deeply uh, tearful, emotional time, we read in Acts, where he says goodbye to them, expecting this is the last time he will see them. The beautiful pastoral engagement of Paul with, with these church leaders. This is sort of the, the church that Timothy is leading. This is the place that he's at. Ephesus has become a key city by the point that Timothy is there. It's a key church. 
It's a key church in the region of Asia Minor. And so there's a reason that Paul charges his dear brother, his fellow missionary, his disciple Timothy, his, his, his number one, uh, to go and take watch over this church. It's hard to date, really, this letter. There's not a lot of internal evidence for us, but we, our best guess is that Paul's writing this about 14 years after Timothy has joined him in missionary work. So they've been together for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's some point after, likely after Paul's release from Rome, uh, prison in Rome, that we read about at the end of Acts chapter 28. And the whole point here is that I, that I want you to see is that they've been together for a long time. They have a deep relationship. Timothy, he's, he's likely in his 30s by this point, maybe, maybe as much as 40. He's a young pastor, though. Paul has been his mentor for a number of years. They have a deep friendship. They've served together. The Lord has done a lot in their relationship and their bond and, and the fruit of their work. So that's why he writes him a letter. Right? That's the background of the book. That frames it in. Hopefully that's helpful for you as you study it this semester. Hopefully that's helpful for you as we start to unpack chapter one. So why don't we dive in there? Let's see. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it on, flip it open, do whatever you need to do to get to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to just read uh, verses 3 through 20 this morning. That's, well, that's most of the chapter. I just skipped the first two verses, which are like, Paul, a servant, to Timothy, a servant, and in Ephesus, and, you know, the greetings. All right? Here we're going to see in this letter, in this morning, this first chapter, we're going to see Paul remind Timothy of his calling to ministry, as I referred to earlier on that book chart. He's going to tell him to hold the faith and strive for a stable church. Be the stable leader. He's going to tell him to fight the good fight and keep the faith. Keep the church healthy. That's the key this morning. For a church to be healthy, we have to, for our church to be healthy, we have to fight the good fight, fight of faith. Let's see what Paul means by that. Let's unpack that a little bit and see how he gets there. So, verse 3, let's pick up there. We're going to see Paul affirm Timothy and his purpose for ministry. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is to love, is is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they're making confident assertions. So Paul did his greetings and opening of the letter in two verses, and then right away in three, he jumps right into it, right? Three verses in this letter, he's telling Timothy, reminding him of his previous conversation, and he's charging him, stay where you're at, right? Stay there. The church needs you. Stay in Ephesus. Keep watch over the church. Be a stabilizing force here. Stand against false teachers. Lead the church is what he's calling him to. He doesn't waste any time to get right to it. You can do that. They have a longstanding relationship. Now, false teaching in the church is always a primary concern to Paul, and it is here. And in letters, he takes it head on when he needs it, when, when he needs to, when it's happened in the church. Any teaching that detracts from Jesus can't stand. It has to be stood. We have to, we have to work against it. Any teaching that replaces Jesus can't have it. And so it seems has been the case here in Ephesus. And Paul is writing to charge Timothy. Stand against it. Don't let Jesus be diminished. 
we read that these false teachers, they're teaching a different doctrine, maybe a, a different translation would be a different gospel or an alternate uh, uh, gospel. They're teaching something either altogether different about salvation or just a slight tweak, a slight perversion of salvation through Jesus alone that Paul and Timothy have been teaching. And this isn't unique to their time, right? We talk about it in a lot of different contexts as we've studied over the years, as, as we've, we encounter those that add to the gospel, right? Put extra restrictions on us or, uh, or, or, or change it, right? We encounter people that, that believe you've got to be part of their church denomination, right, to be truly saved. No, you don't got it quite right yet. You should be with us, right? You find those that, that you know, you've got to be baptized in their church, right? They're adding to the gospel. This is an extra step you have to go through to really be saved. You've got to take communion in our church, which means you have to be in good standing with our church to really be saved, right? People adding to the gospel. They're false gospels, false teachings. You should be careful when you encounter these. When you go out from here and you find a new church, when you graduate, careful for those who add to the gospel. Paul tells us that, that these teachers, they've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, right? And, and this is maybe, uh, they're, they're, doing, they're leading to theological speculation, meaningless minutia, right? The myths and genealogy is probably referring to like, it, it's likely referring to the, the stories of the day, sort of the, the societal traditions, the, the, you know, the myths of the gods and, and how, why it rains and how we need to, who we need to pray for for a good harvest and uh, you know, all these superstitions and these, these traditions. Things about the gods, the creations, the world around them, their explanations. They're filtering into the church. These teachers, they're blending these myths into Jesus and his, his message. They're blending society's stories into their own, into the gospel. It's not like, unlike today, the church getting caught, uh, caught up in this movement or that movement, this political stance or that political stance being swayed by the society around us and changing our message to match what the society is saying. You know, if you find yourself in a church, you find yourself here, sounding more like a, a mainstream news outlet or your social media feed, let us know. Be careful. That's a church that's being carried away in the midst of society, of meaningless rather than preaching the gospel. In Ephesus, these teachers, they're, they're, they're misplacing their focus. Their, their syncretism is that they're, they're blending messages, right? And it's leading to theological speculation. Right? They're being caught up in arguments that, are, that are just, there's not clear answers to, right? They have a myopic focus of this is the key thing, and they forget all about the rest of the picture of the gospel. They're making something minor, key, major, meaningless. They're making it meaningful, at least in their eyes. And that's not unlike when we encounter people who have a theological axe to grind, right? Their, their theological camp is the important one. Right? This can come across in all kinds of different church practices, right? Do you do infant baptism? Do you use leavened or unleavened bread in communion? Do you believe in predestination? Do you believe in free will? Right? Who can teach? So when we find ourselves in a church where, where we find our, ourselves spending more time thinking about the theological minutiae, the, the dividing issue, our, our, our pet projects, instead of preaching Jesus, instead of the gospel, 
We're running the risk of, of sitting under false teaching. The church is meant to teach about Jesus, not theological minutia. Those things can be important. They just can't be the primary. These teachers in Ephesus are allowing the, those things to become the primary. Lastly, Paul tells us these teachers are misusing or misunderstanding, misapplying the law, right? Moses, the commandments of God found in the Old Testament, right? The law of Moses. They're making assertions and demands on people, using their faulty understanding of the law, trying to be teachers of it. Now, I... I thought about how do we, what does this look like today? Now, the, the reality is, is it doesn't look any different, right? The, like, this is legalism. This is let's misapply the law and say this is what you need to do to be saved. It's, it's not even like legalism isn't even creative. It's just sort of like, hey, you have to do these things. It's like it's, it's maybe our, our natural bent as, uh, as fallen individuals is what do we have to do to make ourselves better, right? So they're misapplying the law, right? They're, they're saying you got to do these things to be saved, uh, you know? Encounter people in churches still that question your salvation if you if you have a tattoo, which I do, if you have a piercing, which I do, if you drink alcohol, sometimes I do, play cards, which I've shared with you, I've been questioned because I played cards once when I was a teenager, right? If you dress differently, if you don't dress the way that they do, it's legalism, right? When you encounter churches that question salvation based off of these externals, that could be false teaching you're encountering. We want you to know that because Paul cares about this with Timothy. He's helping him get this church healthy by addressing false teaching. And many of you, when you graduate, you're going to go out here and you're going to go to different churches. And we've heard from alumni, and they're like, we thought this church was great, and then we heard them teaching in these things, and we're glad we listened. So keep, keep watch for false teaching. Keep watch for false teaching here. If you hear us, we want to know it. If you think we've gone off, I want to know it. We still have false teachings today. It just might look slightly different. In some cases, it doesn't look any different. All right. It was long-winded. I know. I got on a soapbox for this one. And I tried to cut this part off a lot. I'm passionate about it. It's important. It's one of the things I think you really need as you leave here, as you go off to find a church. So having affirmed Timothy and his calling to stay in Ephesus and watch over the church, and specifically he's outlined the challenges of the false teachers that, he, that Timothy's dealing with. Paul then goes on and he tells Timothy his purpose of being in, in uh, Ephesus is to lead the church to health, to keep it healthy, to stand against the false teachers that are making it unhealthy. So Paul starts here. Because for any of us, Timothy included, to be able to fight the good fight, fight of faith, we have to know our purpose. We have to know why we're there, what we're doing. We need to know why we're at where we're at. And for all of us, what is our purpose? All of us have a purpose, a calling. God has placed you in the family you're in. He's placed you with the friends you have, in the major you have, the brain, the brain that got you there. All gifts from God. He's placed you in the church you grew up in or, or this church. He's placed you on this campus, in your career, with those around you. And he's done that for a purpose. He's done that to reveal more of himself to you and that to reveal more of himself to those around you. Our purpose, your purpose, my purpose, is to stand for the truth of the gospel in life, to be transformed by the gospel and allow others to be transformed around me. Your purpose is to know God deeply, 
and to help others know Jesus deeply. May we all embrace that purpose. That's what, that's what Timothy needs to lean into. He needs to be encouraged to do. Let's continue on. Let's see the, the next uh, section. I promise these next ones will be shorter. Uh, Paul, he, he seems to go on a tangent here, but let me, let me tell you, he's, he's not going on a tangent, right? So pick up in verse 8, right? Now we know that, now we know the law is good for one uses, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual and immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law, <laughs> right? Well, he just came off of teachers that are misusing the law, right? And they're, they're misusing it. They're misunderstanding it. So Paul, he's not going on a tangent here. He's, he's defending the law and that it's good and why it's good, what its purpose is. He does this in Romans. He does this in Galatians. He's explaining what the purpose of the law is. The law is good when it's used appropriately, not as legalism. The purpose of the law. Now, before I unpack the purpose of the law, let me state the obvious here. We could get in the weeds and dissect each of these sins listed here, right? Each of these descriptors of sin that, that Paul has, has put out there. You know, many people do that. It's in the commentaries. It's ground that is important that, that people cover. Many people do that, but we're not going to do that. Because one of the primary reasons that people do that, that I find in sermons and otherwise, is because they're uncomfortable with some of these inclusions here, specifically sexual practices. We're not going to unpack those this morning. Uh, that work often is centering around finding a list that's more acceptable to us in society today. What I want us to do instead is I want us to read what the law said and let God's standards stand. The purpose of the law was to reveal God's standards, to reveal what sin is and what it is not. The purpose of the law is to reveal that God's standards for living. And the law properly understood and properly interpreted reveals those standards. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he uses some examples to communicate that to them, to communicate that to us. The purpose of the law, let me repeat that, the purpose of the law, the commandments given by God in the Old Testament, they reveal sin. The law reveals lawlessness. And all of us are lawless individuals. All of us are sinners. All of us have transgressed the law. We've broken it in one way or another. Some of us in many ways, right? Like Paul, I, I can say I have transgressed the law in many ways. Maybe you can relate. Right? Paul, he's going to go on in our next section. He's going to call himself the foremost sinner. The one that broke the law the most is what he's basically saying. And many throughout church history, if you study church history, church leaders, many agree with Paul. They feel the same way. I think that's because the more we know God, the more we understand the law, the more we realize how holy he is, how holy and perfect his standard is, and how fallen we are, how unholy we are, how much we are full of sin and in need of a Savior. <clears throat> See, why is Paul here? Why is Paul defending the law? Why is he saying it's good? 
Because in order for us to fight the good fight of faith, we have to see our need for God. We have to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And the law helps us see that by revealing the heart of God for his creation and the standards which he intended us to live by and which we failed to live by. And we have failed to live by. Right, Romans 3.23 tells us we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Each of us, every one of us, is a sinner in need of saving. Paul goes on in Romans 6.23, tells us the wages of sin is death, right? Like, sin is a big deal. Death is coming because of sin. Death is in the world because of sin. We're destined for destruction. We're in need of salvation for our sins. Salvation is where Paul goes next. Let's keep reading. It'll pick up in uh, verse 12. This is where Paul is going to tell us the mission of Jesus, the core message of the church, what we should be anchored at. So verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners for whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ may display his perfect patience and is an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just like the hymn, the doxology he's using there is something the church would have known. So like attacking on one of our worship songs or something. So in a typical Pauline way, right? Typical Paul here, he uses himself as an example. But as a negative example, right? I'm the worst of sinners, as he's saying. Before he met Jesus, Paul was the persecutor of the church, right? Standing by as they stoned Stephen to his death at his feet. Right? Invading the homes of believers and, and hauling them off to be arrested, imprisoned, killed. Right? He was an enemy of God. Yet, yet Jesus interrupted. By the mercy of God, Jesus interrupted his life. On the road to Damascus, as we, we studied in, in Acts, Paul was changed. He knew Jesus, and he went from being an opponent to an evangelist, from being an enemy to a missionary. In his ignorance, mercy was extended to him. Right? As the foremost sinner, let me put it this way, as the foremost sinner, Jesus intervened in the foremost way into Paul's life to transform him, to reveal the gospel to him. He appeared to him in a vision, blinding him and calling him to faith. That's mercy. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, mercy was extended to me. That's an overflowing of grace. Jesus embodying himself to save us. An overflowing of grace. Right? He did that because God saves sinners. Even the worst of sinners, even the enemies of God themselves can be saved. Paul was a, a sinner in need of salvation, and so are we. So are we. We are sinners in need of salvation. We're in need of freedom from our sins. Freedom from, from sin is our captor. 
And the good news is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came to display his love for us in dying for us while we were still dead in our sins. And that's the central message of the church. That's where our message needs to be. Not on these other things. Not on these false teachings. Even well-intentioned. The message of Jesus, saving sinners, it brings glory to God. When a sinner embraces salvation in Jesus, God is glorified. Jesus entering our creation and extending grace glorifies God. So in order to fight the good fight of faith, we have to embrace Jesus as the one who saves us from our sins. And to do that, we need to admit to God that we're sinners in need of of saving. We need to accept Jesus as the one who has done that work, who has saved us. And then, for the rest of our days, we continue to embrace that message, continually choose to live in that reality as people saved from our sins for the rest of our days. That's why we're going to continue to preach it every week. Let's look at our our final couple of, of verses here as we wrap up. Paul returns to his very direct nature. He sort of comes back from his tangent, if you, if, if you will. Uh, and he charges Timothy. Here, let's read uh, with his final instructions of this chapter. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, fight the good fight. Hold faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenes and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a lot of reasons your name could be included in the New Testament. This is not one I would like to be included. Just saying, Paul calls out a few people directly, and these are two of the four that I can recall. <laughs> Five, maybe. Uh, tangent. Um, well, to round out his, his opening to, to this book, right? His opening thoughts to Timothy. Paul reminds Timothy of who he is. He's like a son to Paul, one who is called to serve and lead the church, one who has led the church and served with him. He charges him to fight the good warfare, right? Fight the good fight. Hold the faith. Hold fast to the message of Jesus. Don't be sidetracked by false teachers or discouraged by them. This is key because allowing ourselves to stray from that central message of the gospel leads to shipwreck of our faith. Right? Allowing ourselves to be carried off in the myths of our day, carried, caught up in, in social movements and, and replacing the gospel with them, right? Mistaking them for, for Jesus. Being caught up in, in political allegiance or, or political agendas and replacing the gospel with them. They're, they're pathways to shipwreck. Allowing ourselves to be lost in, in endless theological debates that, that go nowhere, right? The debate over minutiae, speculative issues we don't have answers to, rather than having our focus be on the message of Jesus, right? And when, when, if we talk more about, I don't, I don't know what the topic is. It used to be predestination of free will when I was a student, right? Talked more about that than Jesus at times, and, and I needed to be corrected. Those are pathways to shipwreck. If we allow ourselves to misuse scripture, and some do this, mishandle it, misinterpret it, and they do so to, to bend to their theological leaning, their agenda, overlooking other passages that might contradict it. We do that for personal gain, for, for personal fulfillment of this matches what I believe. 
Those can be pathways to shipwreck. Our faith isn't stable. So in order to fight the good fight of faith, we have to keep Jesus as the central point of our faith. Not replacing him with our own pet projects, niche theologies, cultural bias, or, or distorted readings of scripture. And to do that, we need to be on the lookout for false teaching around us, in our church, in our Bible studies, in our friend groups. We also need to be on the lookout for false teaching within us, false thinking within us. We do that by, by daily preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of our need for Jesus and our salvation in Christ alone. So we wash ourselves with the word of God and allow ourselves to be transformed by renewing of our minds, being God's people, encountering him in his word. And so, to wrap up, as, as, as Paul writes to encourage his dear brother Timothy to stay the course of faith and fight the good fight, he tells him to work toward a healthy church. He reminds him that that's his purpose, to preach Jesus and stand against false teachers and detract from the mess, that detract from the message of Jesus. He reminds him that the purpose of the law is to reveal sin as it shows us the heart of God and shows us how far we have strayed from him. Reminds him that we need not despair, though, when we see that we are sinners. Because Jesus has come to save sinners. And that the central message that Timothy is to preach, to keep the center thing center. To center on Jesus. The starting point. That's the starting point of a healthy church. There's no other pathways to hell. Jesus is the pathway to hell. Don't allow the church to, to get lost in myths, speculations, misuse of scripture. This is why, here in Alani Life, every message preaches Jesus. That's where we want to be. Everything points to Jesus when we engage with Scripture. We as, we as elders, as, as leaders, uh, uh, staff leaders, we want to join with Paul's words to, to the church in Corinth and say, we preached Christ crucified. That's it. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, right? He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's our message, Jesus. We're going to stay focused there. Jesus is the message of a line of life. Jesus, the one who came to save sinners, the one who embodied God's grace fully. When he laid down his life on our behalf, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so, we will continue to remind you, as we already have this morning, right, that we're here to live our life with Jesus, live our lives like Jesus, and live our lives for Jesus. And that's how we fight the good fight of faith. Would you pray with me?